Hey, good morning, church. Did you get everything written down there that's happening? Did you get all, did you get all that? You're still, you're still with me? A lot of stuff taking place as we relaunch, as we reopen, and get back to whatever normal is going to look like, and so participate in all those things. I want to remind you this Friday night is a night of worship. Um, it, it, it will do your soul good uh, to be able to come together and worship together for a night just given over to worship. Uh, we'll share in, in communion together and prayer for one another. Hopefully you can join us on Friday night here and, and just and be a part of that and so many things we're getting ready for. Glad you're here this morning. Good morning for, to, to you. Um, we're going to continue our series this morning as we're in the book of Revelation. We're looking at these, church, these letters to the seven churches. I got to tell you right up front, I got a lot to cover today. So keep your seatbelt on, keep your hands in the ride at all times, try to stay, try to stay calm because as we look at this next letter, there's a lot to, to cover. Now, last week we looked at what Jesus had to say to a confused church. Now you might recall, you're thinking, I don't remember hearing that last week. It was King's Brass last week and it was King's Brass, but I also did a sermon online that we, that we streamed at 10 o'clock Sunday morning. So if you haven't gone and watched that one, uh, by all means do that if you want to keep in the sequence of what Jesus is telling these churches and specifically what he's saying to us. Now last week we talked about what Jesus had to say to a confused church and to confused Christians. That was from the, the church in Pergamum. In this week we're going to look at what Jesus has to tell the church in Thyatira. And in Thyatira, that issue is what Jesus has to say to a tolerant church and to tolerant Christians. Now, this is the fourth church written in uh, these letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Here's our text. Let's look at it as we get started. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike their children dead. And then all of the churches will know that I am the, I am the, the one who searches hearts and minds. And I will pay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets... I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Now, there's a lot going on here, and there's a, it's a pretty heavy letter. So we have to walk through it a little bit, so we make sure we understand it. But as I, as I said a couple weeks ago, I was doing this series, as it jumped out the, off, off the pages of Scripture to me, that the times that we are going in really reflect the times that were happening in that time. And Jesus had these great letters to, to, to the church to how to deal with some of the issues that they were facing. And I'm looking at us, I'm thinking, man, we're facing the same things. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. His truth is enduring. His truth was good for them 2,000 years ago. His truth is absolutely right for us 2,000 years later. And so it's going to be pretty timely this morning as we'll look at this. Now let's start off with the name of the, the, the city itself. Now some Greek experts say that when TH, the, the two letters TH are together, that the H is silent and the T is hard. Other uh, Greek experts say that when that happens, the T is silent and the H is hard. Others also say that when T and H are together, you pronounce the T and H together. And on top of that, they say in Greek, when an I shows up by itself, it's not I, it's E. And someone else will say, yes, no, it isn't an E, it's I. So, here's the name of the city that we're talking about. You can either call it Thyatira or Thyatira. You could call it Thyatira or Thyatira. You could call it Hyatira or Hyatira. You have your choice. I'm going to stick with Thyatira. And if you think I'm wrong, I'm not. <laughs> Just so you know, you have choices there, and they don't all agree as to how to pronounce the name. Thyatira. Now, this city was located on an important trade route. It had a lot of traffic going through it, a lot of commerce. It was a very popular, uh, populated town and also a very wealthy town. But it wasn't wealthy like you think of like Beverly Hills type wealthy. We're not talking about the, the upper of society there, but there was a lot of money in this town. Uh, these would be, in, in the, the vernacular of our world today, these would be blue-collar workers, but they had means. They had money. The economy there was very, very strong. But there was something else about this city which was very interesting to make note of. This, this city was very, very strong with unions, um, the, the, the uh, trade guilds. In fact, the trade guilds basically ran everything about it. If you were going to succeed, if you were going to feed your family, if you were going to be in this city, you belonged to one of the trade guilds. And what was interesting about these trade guilds is they were this odd mix of not only the trade that you were part of, but mixed in there with these belief systems that they adhered to, a lot of immorality that they practiced, and on top of that, there was this political component about it as well. It was a very odd thing. So here's the thing. To be successful... To enjoy any kind of economic vitality in the area, uh, you needed to belong to one of the local guilds. You needed to be a part of them because that's where most of the money came from and that's where your jobs came from. You had to be a local member of the local guild, the local group. But the problem is it wasn't just being a part of a trade group. If you were a mason and you, and you did brickwork and you did brick liners and stonework or whatever, and you could say, well, I'm going to join that group. But it wasn't just about associating with them because you were a bricklayer or because you did stonework, that if you were in, you were in, in all of it. A lot of secret societies that were all part of these groups. And so what happened, if you're going to be part of the group, not only did you have to have your trade, but you, have, you had your beliefs lined up with them. You had to have your practices lined up with them because you had to belong to this group, this club, if you will. And in fact, it was they were known, these groups were known to be horrendous by the things that they did and how, what they participated in. Not illegal things, just wrong things, morally wrong. 
In fact, the gatherings of these trade guilds, they would call them their banquets. The banquets that they would put on for their guild members and for the politicians in town to kind of buy them off and be a part of them, they were notorious for immorality, sexual immorality. These were horrible things to participate in. So you could see the tension, right? You can begin to understand the tension that would be there and the problematic nature of it all for a people who had given their life to Jesus and who wanted their lives to be different and had decided they were going to live their lives differently. And if you were a bricklayer, if you were a carpenter and you gave your life to Jesus, all of a sudden you're in this really tough spot because you want to live your life differently and yet to be a part of that group, they wouldn't allow you to do that. You have to participate with them. So how do you belong to these groups where your participation is expected? You buy in with them. The pressure to fit in, the pressure to be accepted, the pressure to keep your job, the pressure to feed your family. The tension was huge. The pressure was great. Best picture I can give you is this. Years ago, uh, one of my good friends pastored in, in Kentucky particular part of Kentucky and we were together having lunch one day and I was asking how things going he said that's pretty tough I gotta tell you it's pretty tough pastoring here and having people come to Jesus I said well why is that now granted it's tough anywhere I said why is he said here's the problem right where we live the three there are three major industries 80 to 90 percent of everyone's occupation everyone's job is in these three industries gambling tobacco and alcohol Gambling because of the horses, tobacco because they raise tobacco farmers for cigarettes, and of course, big breweries in town uh, that, uh, where they made whiskey. And he looked at me, he said this, he said, so a person in my area gives their life to Jesus Christ and decides they're going to live a different life. What do you do with that? When your whole life is in the vice of gambling, your whole life is rolling cigarettes or growing tobacco, or on top of that, you're making hard liquor. And I sat there thinking, I said, you know, you're right. I guess it's better here. I guess, I mean, we don't have to make, for most of us, we don't have to make those really, really hard decisions with your whole livelihood as you begin to feel convicted about how you want to live, how you, how you should live your life. And so I give that picture because you begin to get it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't have tensions here. I'm not suggesting that we don't have decisions that when we give our lives to Christ and we make the decision to start living differently, that you've got to make some decisions sometimes. They're going to be hard. I don't mean to, take this to, to, to not say that at all. But what happens is this. When you're under that kind of pressure in this culture that keeps changing, and then what happens when we see in this church, the culture kept changing, it kept changing. But what was happening outside of that culture is it began to penetrate inside the church. So the cultural thought process out there began to make its way into the church where the church thought process began to change along with the culture. Now think about this. Think about how the culture's changed in our era of time. Think about the culture some 50 years ago. I go back in time and I can still remember my pastoral ministries class where I sat in that class as a senior with a local pastor who was an adjunct professor who was teaching us how to, how to do ministry. Teaching us how to prepare for ministry. Things like this. One of the things you want to do, guys, you want to keep a hymn book in your car. And I'm taking notes. Okay, yeah, that's good. That's good. Hymn book, yeah. Why? Because when you're traveling along, you can pull out the hymn book, you and your wife, and you can just see how many hymns you, you can sing. And you can worship by singing the hymns as you drive around. Well, that's good. Always sleep with pajamas on. Okay. This is pastoral ministry class. Okay. Because you never know when the doorbell's going to ring in the middle of the night. You have to get up and you don't have to be looking for clothes. Ooh, that sounds like good stuff. 
Don't forget, you know, you're just a kid and you're just jotting down, you know, all the good stuff. I never dreamt I'd have to be thinking about churches having to have gender neutral bathrooms. Never thought that that'd be an issue where we have to think some of those things through. And they never told us, hey, be prepared because sometime in your generation, uh, marijuana is going to be legal. And anyone can smoke it and it's okay. It's not wrong. And you think, huh, I, never, I didn't think I'd have to deal with that. I can still remember the first time in children's ministries when they came to my office and said, you're going to have to sort this one out with us. I go, sort what out? Well, we have a family register for their kids for our programs. I go, yeah. And there's two mommies. And we don't have any way to put that into our database. So our database says mother's name or father's name or single, but we don't have a place to put two mommies or two daddies. And these three kids have two mommies. Well, what do we do with those? I'm going to call the district superintendent. Maybe he can answer. I don't know what to do with that. We didn't. We sat down and thought this through because we said this. We're not going to punish children. And we're not going to judge parents who are here. So how do you find the balance, right? How do you find the balance of this issue with tolerance and grace? So what, so what, see what I mean when I said that this, the text jump off the page instead of the culture that we're in, to the culture that they were in? So what do you do in those moments? Because it's changed radically. And that's where the church at Thyatira was at. They had this sense of truth and they knew what was true and they knew how they should live. Um, and they knew what it meant to be a believer, follower of Jesus. But over time, they began to drift. Over time, they started getting tolerated some of the things that the culture was thinking. And they began to get tolerant of how the culture was thinking. And the way the culture was thinking had made it into the church. Now, be sure to get this right. It's not the church's job or Christians' jobs to expect the culture or the world to act like Christians. Make sure you get that. It's not the church's job to expect the world to act like they're followers of Christ. It's the church's job for the church to act like followers of Christ. You see, we've got a lot of Christians that, have, that want to go out and make all the world look like Christians. And that's not the job of the church. It's our job to bring people to Jesus. And let Jesus do the transforming work in their own heart. But it's not our job to make the world look like Christians. I mean, folks, we've got enough, we have big enough problems making ourselves look like Christians. And let's be honest, we got enough work on our own. We don't have to go out looking at the world saying, how can we make them act differently? That's not the issue. What was happening in this church is that they began internally to begin thinking exactly like the world thought. The problem was they began to tolerate the culture's thinking in the church. The cultural, think, the cultural thinking of the day began to become the church's thinking. Now, we know nothing about the start of this church. We don't know how it got started, who started it, or when. But we do know that Jesus had something to say in the time in which they lived. And it's the same thing he has to say to us in the times in which he lived. So we're going to have to walk through this and, and sort out some of the pieces. So here we go, verse 18. So to the angel of the church in Thyatira write that these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like bronze, uh, burnished bronze. This is actually an incredible picture of Jesus that you really have to get because it really sets the platform then for understanding it all. And here's the picture. It, says, it basically says this. It talks, it talks real clearly about him having these feet of burnished bronze and eyes like blazing fire. It means this. His, his footing is firm and his sight is flawless. It means this. It means his footing is firm and solid and his eyes are piercing and see everything. 
He is firmly planted and he misses nothing. Or maybe this one. He is absolutely rock solid and he sees right through you. That's what it means. And they would understand that. Feet of bronze, I mean, most idols in that day were made out of clay. Feet of bronze meaning these feet were solid. They weren't going to break or crack. These feet, his footing was solid. And these eyes of fire means that they can see right through you. I remember as a kid that we used to go to a summer camp every, every year for their big family camp. There'd be this big tabernacle with 2,000 people. And I remember I always had to sit with my parents. We sat about six rows down from the front. Always had to sit with them. All my friends were going to be there one night. And when I wanted to sit with them, they said yes. I wouldn't sit with my friends. And of course, we were sitting like two rows in the front. Don't ask me why. But we did. And we started to laughing. And we started to giggling during the evening service. And the preacher's preaching and we're laughing. And all of a sudden, I can't explain this. But all of a sudden, I broke out into a sweat because I knew that my mother's eyes were penetrating <laughs> the back of my head. And I can't, I can, I can, I can tell you, I can remember it, sitting there and just going, <gasps> and everyone's going, what? They're, just, they're trying to talk to me. I'm not talking anymore. I'm not. And, and so after a while, you think, I got to look. I, I got to look. So as nonchalantly as you can, you know, I just kind of, what do I get? (laughs) So imagine the penetrating nature of a parent's eyes and multiply it by billions. He says his feet are firm and he sees right through you to the heart. Now, that's good news and bad news, right? That picture of Jesus Christ is both good news and bad news. I mean, isn't that good news to know that when, when, when in a world where people question your motives, where they question everything that you do or who you are, God sees your heart, he knows your motives. Isn't it good to know that when other people look at you and they can't figure out why you're serving, God knows your heart and he knows why you're serving. Isn't that good to know that in a culture where everything is unsure and you never know what the truth is, that God says, well, I know the truth and he sees the truth clearly. Isn't it good to know in a culture that seems to be off balance, God is always in balance. He knows your heart. He knows the things that you battle with. That's good news. But there's always a bad news part of that too, right? It's really bad news if you're a pretender. It's a bad news if you're saying, well, I claim to be this, but I'm actually this. I put the front on that I'm this way, but really in my heart, I'm not anything like that. Pretenders. Pretending to be a certain way, and yet their heart would reveal that they're clearly in a whole different place. And Jesus says, I see right through you. You can fool the church people. You can look really good in your seat. But I see right through you. Verse 19. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and your perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. So now Jesus says, now please know, I see the good side of you. I see your good deeds. I see your good traits. I know your heart, and I know your faith, and I know that you want to do the right thing. In fact, he actually actually says this in the text. He actually says, in fact, you're actually doing better than you were. He actually says, listen, you're actually doing better. You were doing worse than this, and you're coming along, and look at you're doing better now. But you still have a blind spot. It's not good. Verse 20. 
Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, this is important for a quick point for us. There's a lot of good going on in the church, uh, but he says, and I see the good things you're doing, but there's still something wrong. And here's a quick lesson for us that, and here's it's a simple statement. Never drop your guard. You see, what happens is we have these moments in our lives where we're battling something and we kind of get on top of it and we go, ah, I conquered that. Never drop your guard. Because there are these moments in our lives where we can figure like we're doing really well and we've just conquered something. And it's that moment where you're just set up for failure because we let our guard down. It's so easy for us to think, man, I'm doing so good. I got this. Boom. Here comes the tempter. So be very, very careful. We can be so confident at how good we are. Man, and he comes right in. I still remember a number of years ago talking to a guy in Costco, a guy who had been going through a number of battles, and he, he stopped me in the middle of Costco, and he had talked to me. He said, you know, I don't understand what's going on in my life. I don't understand what's going on in my life. And I'm, you know, I'm just looking to free samples. Um, <laughs> just looking for a couple of free samples along the way. And, you know, if you don't hurry, they're gone because some of those people walk up and take five. And so I said, so well, what do you mean? He goes, you know, because I got 95% good. I said, what? He goes, I'm 95% good. I, I got this big issue, but it's only 5%. And I kind of, I looked at him and said, but you do know that that 5% is just crushing you. You see, it's real easy to kind of say, well, I'm 95% good. But man, that 5% knock you right out. So be very, very careful when we find ourselves saying, things are really, really good. Now, maybe this church was saying, hey, you know, things are looking pretty good. So we don't have to worry about this stuff. But something was still critically wrong. Again, back in that verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality in the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, if you take notes, write down the word tolerate. He says, you tolerate. What can be said about this church is that it was a tolerant church. They tolerated that woman Jezebel. Now, what does the word tolerate mean? It's pretty critical to get this. Tolerate means that we get comfortable with things that we should be uncomfortable with. Tolerating something means we get comfortable with something that we should be uncomfortable with. Some things that are just uncomfortable and they should be uncomfortable in our life. Bad ethics should be uncomfortable. Bad morality should be uncomfortable. Poisonous relationships we should be uncomfortable with. Um, bad theology, bad attitudes. We should be uncomfortable with those as opposed to find our way making ourselves more comfortable. See, in this church, they were tolerating some bad teaching and it tells us from a woman who is described as Jezebel. Now, we don't think that's the woman's actual name, just so you know. We don't believe that her actual name was Jezebel. Now, let me give you some background. Jezebel was an Old Testament queen. Some of you might recall that Jezebel was an Old Testament queen who single-handedly brought into Israel and led Israel into some of the most pagan worship in its history. She was an evil queen and she brought into Israel the practice of worshiping the pagan god Baal. And if you read the stories in the Old Testament, she single-handedly, I mean, brought into the city and, or into the country this worship of Baal and basically was the undoing of the people. Now, the picture given to us here is that there's a woman in the church who's being allowed to do in the church there what Jezebel did in the Old Testament thousands of years earlier. One commentator wrote this, there was a Jezebel of a woman 
involved in the church there. There was a Jezebel of a woman was the statement. Now, let's add tw- verse 21 into the mix. And I, ha- and I have given her, I'm sorry, uh, the whole thing. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who called herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants in the sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Now, we have to notice something here. Um, whoever this woman is, she calls herself a prophet. She calls herself a prophet. Now, unless you think about this, you're, kind of, you're going to miss this moment, I think. By first reading it, you kind of miss kind of the d- dynamic tension that's here. So I want to explain it real quickly. So who's writing this letter? It's Jesus. John is writing it, but he's the pen for Jesus' words. So Jesus is the one speaking here. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the Son of God. Now, Jesus would say this. If you know me, you know my heavenly Father. If you've seen me you have seen God. If you listen to me, you are listening to God himself. Now, this woman claims to be a prophet. Don't forget what a prophet was. A prophet was a person who hears from God and then speaks for God. So, when a person says, hey, I'm a prophet, that means they hear from God, and then accordingly, what they speak, you better listen because they're speaking for God himself. She says to the church, I speak for God. My words... That's what a prophet would say. My words are God's words. But who's doing the rebuking here? Jesus, the Son of God. And so she would say to the church, um, just so you know, I speak for God. And Jesus would say, not. (laughs) You don't. She would say, I have the word of God. Jesus would say, I am the word of God. And so you got to catch that. There's a tension here. And just for the record, kind of a side note for you, because I've, I've seen as I've been studying this, some people misinterpret some things. Just for, the, just for the record, in case somebody might lean this way in your interpretation. This is not an issue, this issue that's being de- dealt with here, is not an issue because there's a woman who's a prophet. It's because there's a believer who claims to be a prophet. It's not about a woman. One commentator said, this is just proof that a woman shouldn't be blah, blah, blah. And that's just absolutely wrong. What's happening here, this is not about that she's a prophet and she's a woman and she's not supposed to be a prophet. This is a case about a Christian who's got bad theology and a Christian who claims to be something that they're not and it happens to be a woman. Now, what is she teaching? What is she teaching and and leading some of the Christians to do? Two things. She's leading them in sexual immorality and she's leading them to eat things that they are not supposed to be eating. Things that were sacrificed to idols or strangled. Now, these were not new problems. If you go back in the Old New Testament back a little further, you'll find that Gentiles were coming to Jesus left and right. But some of the first people who came to Christ were some Jews. And don't forget the disciples would have been Jewish. Jesus himself was Hebrew. And so what was happening is this. There was a number of, of Jews that had become Christian. And what was happening is they were trying to make this new thing of Christianity a Jewish thing. You know, they were just the fulfilled Jews, if you will. The whole thing of following Jesus was going to be a Jewish thing. The problem was the Gentiles were coming to Jesus and they were joining the group. And so they don't know what to do with each other. Because don't forget, the Jewish person would come to Jesus, but they'd still keep all of their stuff. All of the stuff that would make them holy and keep them separate. The Gentiles are coming in, and they're coming from a totally different background, so they're not getting any of these things. They just know they love Jesus and following Jesus. On top of that, the Gentiles weren't circumcised, the Jews were. So we read some of the problems happening. The Jews are saying, hey, this new Christian thing, that's a Jewish thing. And so if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to do some of the other Jewish things with it. And one of the things is any Gentile have to be circumcised. On top of that, they have to abide by all of our past Jewish rules. 
So it wasn't a new thing. In fact, it was such a problem that there was a council held in Jerusalem where all the leaders came together. And here's the ultimate decision from Acts 15. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, that first part is a reference where they want to do all these things like mandate to get circumcised, all those things. He says, listen, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them, abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So, here's the thing. He says, so here's the things we're going to say. Don't participate in these. God is really clear as Christians, stop the immoral sexual activity. And for these new believers specifically, don't eat meat that's been, that's been offered up to idols and some other things. It comes up later again. We won't get into that right now. So what was Jezebel teaching? What was she leading? She was leading a movement that said, listen, you can be a follower of Jesus and participate in sexual immorality. In fact, she didn't just teach it. She was modeling it and she was inviting people into that lifestyle. On top of that, they were having sexual immorality uh, happenings as part of their following of Jesus and they'd eat any, anything would go as far as what they would eat. And not only was she teaching it, but she was leading it and modeling it. And she was not speaking for God. That's real critical here. Then the text says something with, um, with a not so obvious warning to us. In uh, verse 21, there's this one sentence I'll read for you there. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. There's a, there's a warning there that I want to make sure you understand. I've given her time to repent, but she's not willing. The Message Bible says it this way. She has no intention of giving up her career in the God business. I like that. She has no intent about repenting. She has no intent of giving up her career in the God business. There's a great nugget here that I want to make sure you get. And the nugget is wrapped up in the words, he had given her time to repent. God gave to her time. Jesus says, I'm going to, what you're doing is wrong. And I'm going to give you the opportunity here to repent. I'll give you time to do so. But what was happening during this time? Well, we have that. Church was good. During this time where she has time to repent, church is good, everything's going well, things are going smooth, church is growing, in fact, they're even doing better than they were. So you look at it and think, man, things look pretty good. And here's the nugget. When you're going through a season in your life where all is well and smooth sailing, just make sure you take time to make sure it's actually God's blessing and not just God's patience while he's giving you time to repent. Let's think about that for this moment. When everything's going smooth, we have this attitude that says, man, everything's great. It must be perfect. Nothing going on in my life. And maybe it is God's blessing. I'm not trying to over-worry you because the truth of it is what I've come to learn is when things are going well and I've got something glaring in my life where I'm supposed to be dealing with it and I'm not, I usually know what it is. I mean, please know, God doesn't play this secret with you. You've got this horrible sin in your life and I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to have to try to figure it out. Oops, nope, wrong guess. Try again. And I would also say if you've got multiple guesses, you're really in trouble. See, that is not the nature of God to look at your life and have something he's holding against you, something in your life you know is absolutely wrong and God says, I'm not going to point it out. God will point it out. But I want you to make, capture this moment. Everything's going well. And it's possible that maybe the church thinking was this. Well, things in, ch in church are pretty good. Better than ever, in fact. I mean, you know, uh, the letter even says we're doing really good. So how then could they be sucked up into the thinking that her teachings in the church were actually okay and were good? Well, maybe they were thinking this. Well, how could it be wrong when everything's going so well? How can God be opposed to it when he hasn't done anything? How can it be wrong when it feels so 
right. Be very careful. Jesus is giving her time to repent before consequences. and all seemed well. But that calm was a great example of God's patience. Not necessarily his blessing. Jesus had given her time to repent. And he'd given the church time to repent. And both refused to do so. Make sure you get that. It wasn't just her who hadn't repented. But the church had not repented. The church had not taken action. Now, one more thing he adds that the church had better be careful of. It's in verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Talks about Satan's teachings, teaching or learning Satan's deep secrets. We are not exactly sure what exactly this Jezebel of a woman was teaching to what, she was, what was being referred to as Satan's deep secrets. We really don't know exactly what this is. But here's the picture we get. She was standing incredibly close to the edge. She's standing on a very, very slippery slope, arrogant for what she's teaching. It's clearly wrong, and yet she's teaching it with this arrogance that she knows better than God and that she's right. She's so enlightened. Maybe her thought process is, well, I'm teaching this because I'm more enlightened than the rest of you. That's what the culture thinks oftentimes. Whenever the church has a position against something that the culture disagrees with, the culture often thinks, well, we're just enlightened. And those silly, stupid church people haven't been enlightened yet. So maybe what she's thinking is that she's so enlightened. She's so enlightened that she had figured out a way to work all of these pagan practices into the church and to Christian lives. Um, She was so arrogant of that moment and so arrogant in her thinking. And God says, stop this. Now the Message Bible says it this way. She was playing around with the devil and actually referring to the church, they were playing around with the devil and what they were doing got, got presented as profundity, as something profound. You know what that means, right? It means that they were dancing around with the devil. They had practices that were absolutely wrong and their actions said to everyone, look how profound we are. Look how enlightened we are. Look how arrived we are. You people who think it's wrong, you're just backward. Let me summarize four glaring errors. And I'm going to touch them real quickly. But four glaring errors in this woman's life that we can take some lessons from and be very careful of. First, she misused scripture. The problem with so many people, so many Christians who are in in deep trouble is that they have enough scripture to make them dangerous. Because they, they have learned how to pick and choose a verse here and there Proof texting is what it's called to make their case when it doesn't reflect the the complete nature of Scripture. False teachers always have enough Scripture to make it hard to see that it's false teaching. Second thing she did is she grabbed hold of authority. I want to remind you that authority is given, authority is not taken. True authority is given. It says in the text that she called herself a prophet. The people didn't call her prophet. The, The leaders didn't call her prophet, call her a prophet. And some of you, I'm going to date myself now, but some of you may recall this. When President Reagan was president and was shot, um, there was a moment in time, if talking about grabbing authority, that has gone down in the history books by a guy by the name of Haig. You might remember Alexander Haig. Alexander Haig at that point was over at the Pentagon and President Reagan was shot. And he jumped in a car and he, he, he hastily, he got to the White House. He went to the, the press briefing room and stood at the podium and said to the world, don't anyone be alarmed, I'm in control here. 
Now, apparently, he forgot that there's actually a vice president. <laughs> apparently, he forgot there's actually the, the speaker of the house. And there's a whole chain of people who would be in charge before he was. But he took the podium to announce, don't worry, I'm in control. And, and the whole world, the press specifically said, what do you mean you're in control? You're not in control just because you say you're in control. She grabbed authority. Authority is given, not taken. Third thing is she refused to repent. She refused to repent. Friends, when you know you're wrong, don't let pride keep you from saying I'm wrong. Fourth, she was spiritually arrogant. She was teaching the deeper things. She'd arrive where they had not arrived. Um, she was teaching the so-called deeper secrets of Satan, whatever they were. Now remember, there, this, this was a person who professed to be a follower of Jesus. Please remember, this Jezebel person claimed to be a follower of Jesus. And yet, she was leading those followers of Jesus into immoral practices. And all the time, she was misusing scripture. She had taken a hold of authority. She refused to repent. And she's acting with arrogance. So, Jesus' response, I gave her time to repent. But now let's add to it, verse 22. So, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike their children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Sounds like God means business. This is probably one of the most pointed things we have in Scripture when God says, listen, here's going to be the consequence. Now, be sure to notice that not only will she be the one who will be dealt with, but the church is also going to be dealt with. Make sure you get that. This is the case where she's going to be dealt with, but for all these people who are tolerant of what she taught, tolerant of the people that she led, they're going to be dealt with as well. Now, why is God so strong here? Because the people knew better. This is really critical. Why is God so strong and so strong-handed here? Because everyone knew better. Uh, maybe they didn't want to have a hard conversation with her. Maybe they were afraid of how the conversation was going to go. Maybe they didn't like confrontation. Hey, I mean, don't raise your hand here on this one. Anybody here ever not talk to someone when they should because you don't like confrontation? I mean, who likes confrontation? Don't raise your hand there either because either way, it's no, it's no good there. <laughs> So maybe they didn't want to have the conversation because they hate confrontation like that. I mean, all those things. But the bottom line is they knew better. Whether they don't want to have the conversation out, they know better than they'll allow this to go on. And now, side note for you that'll help you a little bit. This was not, this statement about killing children, we don't believe at all that it actually was a statement of he's going to kill the children. For many of us, we would look at that and think, man, how does a loving God kill innocent children? Uh, real quickly, Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the idea of worshiping idols or worshiping false gods was described as adultery against God. And um, giving one's heart and affection to another was considered adultery against God. This seems to be the implied, the implication here seems that for her and those who follow her, i.e. her children, for her and her teaching and for those who follow that teaching, all of them are going to be facing the consequences. God will hold them all accountable. Now what's clear here is this. Make sure you get this. This woman's cancerous teaching was being treated or being tolerated in the church and being treated like it was okay. In the church. And it will be dealt with. I want you to hear this very carefully. I, as your pastor, 
Every one of the elders of this church who are selected and appointed by you to be the spiritual overseers of this church have a key primary role, and that is for the spiritual protection of the church and keeping out away and keeping us away from false teaching. You need to know we take that very, very seriously. And this verse just gives you a picture again of why you have to be so careful about cultural thinking coming into the church. Then there's verse 24 and 25. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. For those of you who don't, don't hold to her teaching, for those of you who haven't, haven't tolerated it, for those of you who know it's wrong and have tried to take a stand, I, I, know, I know that living in this city is hard. For those of you who've been standing against this, I know that your life is hard. And I'm not going to place any other burden against you because you need to know it's hard enough and I get that. And so he says, listen, so what I'll say to you is this, I'm not going to add anything else to you. It's already difficult, so I'm just going to say this. So just hold on. For those of you who have not been tolerant, for those of you who keep standing on the truth, just keep standing on the truth and hold on because I'm coming. That's the statement. Just hold on because I haven't forgotten you. Hold on because I am going to come and I'm going to get you. The wording that's used here is very critical for you to know. The wording that's used here is not of a sprint. I mean, it's a marathon. He's not saying hold on for the quick sprint. He's saying you have to hold on for a little while. He said, you're not going to conquer this thing. You're not going to conquer this world by a quick sprint. You have to hold fast, even though at times you're going to get tired, even at times you're going to want to quit. And at times you're not sure what to believe or how to act. And quite honestly, there are times in all of our lives when we're unsure what the rules are, right? You cannot live in this world without having moments where you're, gonna, where you're kind of going, I don't know what the rule is here. I, I, I don't know what's okay and what's not okay. Um, where do you hold fast and when do you bend a little bit? And when do you stand firm? Let's be honest, it's hard to know. So I'll give you a key word, balance. Key word is balance. Balancing truth and balancing tolerance. The problem is this. We want to stand for what we should stand for. And yet we want to do that with a sense of balance and we're not exactly sure where the line is at. That's, 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 a, bad, that's a struggle, right? I want to stand for the truth, but where's the line at? So let me get real practical here. Because in every one of our lives at times we'll say, well, how far do we go? And, and what's okay and what's not? Where do we dig in? Let me give you some real practical help. You see, some Christians see everything in black and white, and accordingly, they got very hard lines drawn. We know people like that in your life, right? There are some Christians where everything is black and white. Now, I'll confess to you right now, I wish it was as black and white for me. Because I got to tell you, living in a gray world is harder than black and white. Black and white is real fine, real easy. This is right, this is wrong, do the right, don't do the wrong. But when you got some gray stuff, you got to make some decisions, you got to sort that through. When I was a kid, I, was lived, I grew up in a church. I grew up in a family that was black and white. I got to tell you, the rules were pretty easy. Um, secular music, sin. Dancing, sin. Um, most movies, sin. Going to movie theater, sin. And it was really, really simple. I knew exactly what I could do, what I couldn't do. I didn't understand why I couldn't do some of it. Dancing, sin. Now, because of that, dancing was sin. We grew up with kids. Dancing was sin. I've shared this with you before. The only time my whole life I loved being a Christian as a kid is in gym class when I took a note that said I wasn't allowed to dance <laughs> because of my religious beliefs. And it's the only time my whole life growing up in elementary school that every kid wanted to be part of my religion. <laughs> Say, what? I don't have dance because it's against my religion. What religion are you? I want in. 
The problem is now that I'm, I'm, I can dance. Now I know I got freedom in dancing. Now it is a sin when I dance. It's a little, little bad. It's really bad. Actually, I'm a very good dancer. I'm not going to show you, so just relax. <laughs> so the, the problem then is, is in, then where do we find this middle ground? Um, how do we find this balance? So here we go. Truth without tolerance. Make sure you catch this. Truth without tolerance is legalism. Truth with no tolerance is legalism. It's faith without fun. It's souls without a smile. It's people without joy. It's the Pharisees. And this is very deceptive. And make sure you hear this. If this, this is where you lean. It's very deceptive because you can be a really good rule keeper. You can really keep all the spiritual tests, uh, you know, and, and pass them, if you will. You can be a spiritual list maker and still not have a right relationship with God. Even though you can check your list of all the things you do. And it will be deceptive because you think, man, look how good I am. But you can still not be in the right relationship with God. But you might look really spiritual. So truth without tolerance is legalism. But tolerance without truth is liberalism. All tolerance, no truth, liberalism. Anything goes as long as we're in step with the culture. We compromise, we explain it away, we stretch the truth, and soon everything that's acceptable in the culture becomes justified in the, tr in the church. The answer, balance. One day there was a woman brought before Jesus, you may recall, caught in adultery. They threw her down in front of Jesus in front of the whole world to see, and they said to her this, hey, she was caught in adultery. The law says stone her. That would be the truth. And what are you going to do, Jesus? Well, now, you, that, the truth is to stone her, but you can't just wink and go, okay, just go away. Don't, don't do it again. Can't do that. You got to find balance. Jesus was so good at balance. We're not so good at balance. So how do we find balance between grace and truth? Here's the ending. They're just quick bullet points as we close. How do we find balance between grace and truth? Let me give you a handful of questions or statements that'll help you process that. First thing is this, when you're looking at an issue, is this a major issue or a minor issue according to the scriptures? Is this a major issue? Is this a tier one Bible issue? Or maybe not. And so don't go by according to what you think. Don't go according to how you feel. Don't go according to your upbringing. Just ask, what's the Bible say about it? Is this a, is this a tier one issue with the scriptures? Second thing is this, has God given you a biblical conviction about an issue? Has God already convicted you in your heart about how you should act or believe on an issue? Now, not your conviction on how everyone else should react to the issue, but the conviction on how you're supposed to live on the issue. See, the problem with most Christians is they go, yeah, I got a conviction. And by the way, my conviction is that how you should live. <laughs> Has he given you a conviction on how you should live? Uh, Romans 14 verse 5 one person considers one day more sacred than the other another considers every day alike each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind and what that says is hey you may agree you may think one day I think another day the issue is what's God convicted you about and it's not for you to judge them so has God given you a personal conviction about it for your own life third thing to ask yourself is this um, or a statement to say if in doubt throw it out if in doubt, throw it out. And I was in high school and college, for early years in college, I umpired, and re umpired baseball and softball. And I had a rule of thumb. When in doubt, they're out. You know, because one thing's worse is if you're doing any refereeing thing, when you have to stop and hesitate, you're a dead man. You know, if there's a close play and you go, mm, hmm, 
done. I'd rather get yelled at for one thing and so my rule of thumb, if they're close, throw them out. You know, when in doubt, it's out. When in doubt, when you've got something where you're trying to figure out how to justify it, just throw it out. Don't spend a lot of time trying to make, 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 make it work and how it can work in your life. Throw it out. Fourth thing is this. How does your decision in this subject affect other believers? When I make a decision about how I stand on some position, how does it affect other believers around me, good or bad? Fifth thing to say is this. Does my position better reflect my love for Jesus or hinder it? Does it better reflect people that I really love God or does it raise a question mark about your love for God? And the last one is this. What would my spiritual role models in my life, what would they do about this? This is critical that when you're trying to sort through issues, that you have other solid believers speaking into your life together. Not just the people that you know will agree with you. Solid believers where you can begin to ask and say, so, so where would you fit in something like this? And then the last thing he says is this, and to those who hold fast, last verses, uh, uh, verse 28, I will also give that one the morning star. And I added Revelation 22 because we have a description here of Jesus. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and I am the bright morning star. So here's how he ends. He says, so listen, for those of you who are staying true, you hold on. And if you hold on, you get me. You hold on, you get me. You hold on and you get the morning star. You hold on and you get to be with me, the Lion of Judah. I myself will be with you forever. Come reign with me. Hold fast. To a tolerant church, Jesus would say, hold to the truth. And you get the morning star. Stand please, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your truth. We live in such an odd time. So we think. And then we stop and read this text and we go, man, they were facing the same issues. So there is a way in which for us to live that honors you. And we don't have to judge the world. We don't have to isolate ourselves from people. We just get ourselves closer to you. May, may your word, the, your truth, may these truths speak into our lives in such a profound way. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.